I'm Andrew Schwartz, and you're listening to The Truth of the Matter, a podcast by CSIS where we break down the top policy issues of the day and talk with the people that can help us best understand what's really going on. To help us get to the truth of the matter about what's going on day by day in Afghanistan, we're monitoring the situation here from Washington, but we have with us a special guest. Not only do we have Dr. Seth Jones from CSIS, but we have Alan Cullison from the Wall Street Journal who just got out of Afghanistan on Saturday. Alan, can you tell us what it was like, the transition in Afghanistan? I mean, you got out before it got really hairy in there, but you were, you know, it was it was getting tense as you were leaving. And can you tell us what that was like? I, I think for Westerners, it, it was probably not that noticeable the, the changes, but you could you could see that Afghans were beginning to understand what was happening. The way that power changes in Afghanistan, uh, at least my my past experience was, was is that it doesn't necessarily involve a lot of fighting. And you know, what happened what happened there? There was there wasn't a big fight for Kabul. You know. They just Kabul just gave up, and I think a lot of Afghans were psychologically ready for that, and they were ex- at least anticipating it. And you, you could tell that Afghans were ready for something to happen. You know, people were coming up to me and asking about exit routes. You know, a week or two before we really realized that things were going to change that much, that there was sort of a foreboding, but not but not panic. It's partly partly because you know I, I think Westerners were some of the last to really understand what was going on there, even even the people who were really experienced among us. Why was it such a surprise? You know, we'd, we'd all sort of been expecting or, and talking up the idea that the Afghan security forces were ready for a fight and were anxious to fight. And that we were also hearing that Kabul was going to be such a hard target, that, you know, the strategic plan was to fall back on hard targets and stuff like that. And it was, you know, it was a Western you know, American narrative that we all kind of like to hear that wasn't necessarily promising, but but it, it made sense from a, an American perspective. But, you know, the way that the Afghans have behaved in the past is that they don't, they really kind of avoid fighting a lot of the time, despite all this war for decades. You know, when various forces understand which way the wind blows, they switch sides or just give up and don't bother with a fight because they know which way it's going to go. I want to bring my colleague Seth Jones in. Seth, you know, you've been covering this for the last 20 years as a scholar, and you've obviously worked with Alan a lot. So I wanted to bring you in for your insight on this. Yeah, I think that, you know, there has been a lot of criticism, Andrew, of the Afghan National Security Forces. And the, you know, people have argued that the, you know, they haven't been, they weren't trained appropriately or equipped appropriately. I do think it's worth recognizing that. I think Afghan officials, Afghan national security officials, including ones that I've spoken to over the past week, were resigned to the departure of U.S. forces, resigned to the fact that the U.S. was not going to back them up in fights in Afghan cities against the Taliban. Alan had covered the fall of Kandahar and some of the early concerns that Kandahar might fall Clearly, Americans were not going to back back them up, and that the major countries in the region, we've seen it over the last two or three days, the Chinese, the Russians, um, even the way the Iranians have responded in supporting the Taliban, that nobody was going to back the government, I mean, other than probably India. And so that, that left Afghanistan essentially alone 
in the region. And I think, you know, why fight a, a lost war right now when it was going to be much easier to attempt to either flee or live to fight another day? And Alan, your experience reporting there, you covered some really intense things, such as you interviewed a lot of prisoners who have since been set free, who are former terrorists, correct? Yeah, that was uh, that, that was my interest, frankly, when I came back to cover the latest phase in Afghanistan. I, I started covering Afghanistan about, you know, right after 9-11, and jihadi groups were a big interest of mine from the very beginning. And so I, uh, as soon as I got, got to Kabul, I started organizing uh, interviews with inmates inside the uh, jails, and specifically some jihadi inmates, to sort of get a better understanding of the relationship between them you know, Daesh and Al-Qaeda and Al-Qaeda and the Taliban. So that was, yeah. That, and then it was something I would have been happy to continue doing if things hadn't fallen apart, apart so quickly. It was a, um, besides the disappointment of seeing the country fall apart, I was uh, really intrigued with what I was about to do in all the prisons there. What did you learn from these prisoners and what do you expect from them now that they've been released? You have Al-Qaeda prisoners being released. You have ISIS Daesh, as you just called them, being released. What does that mean for the future of Afghanistan and its people, particularly the people in Kabul who had grown really into a pretty cosmopolitan society? Well, I think that these groups are pretty vibrant there. I think one thing that I was quite impressed by was some kind of confirmation that there was some real rivalry between ISIS and the Taliban, because one gentleman who I interviewed spent quite a bit of time with uh you know right up to the end i interviewed him last week was the head of isis for afghanistan and as soon as the taliban came into kabul they took him out of the prison and killed him that was yeah right after my departure uh, I, I think that 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 uh, animosity is real they seem to see one another as competitors I don't know if it's anything we really ought to be that encouraged by. I mean, I, I think a lot of people think that it might be safe to leave Afghanistan because uh, the Taliban is hostile to Daesh, but just because they go around killing ISIS and Daesh people, that doesn't really mean that the Taliban's moderate. I mean, I, I think that, you know, Stalinists used to kill Trotskyists and, you know, they're still Stalinists doing it. So I, I don't, I, I'd be pretty pessimistic about the future. Although, you know, I can be pleasantly surprised. I, I think that although there are elements of the Taliban that really will want to live at peace with the outside world and not be banned by it, I think that they will be under the pressure of all sorts of jihadi groups to uh, be radical and push them to radical ends. Seth, you've studied these groups a long time and you've been thinking about what are the consequences of these groups getting out of prison. What are your thoughts? Well, I want to go back to a comment that President Biden said on Monday which is, he said, the only vital interest in Afghanistan remains today what it has always been, which is preventing a terrorist attack on the American homeland, end quote. And I think that's actually more true today than it was last week or the week before. Because now we have a government in Kabul and a Taliban that controls now all the major cities in the country. Now we've got thousands and not just hundreds, but thousands of prisoners that have been released that include those from Al-Qaeda, those from other groups, Lashkar-e-Taiba, 
the Pakistan Taliban or Tariki Taliban Pakistan, Jashi Mohammed released from prison. There was an incredible UN assessment in June of 2021 arguing that a large number of al-Qaeda fighters and other foreign extremists aligned with the Taliban are located throughout the country. So I think that raises a lot of very serious questions about what the U.S. should do moving forward on the counterterrorism front. And I think at the very least, even without U.S. forces there, the U.S. is going to have to put together a strategy for conducting persistent ISR, intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance over key areas of Afghanistan, and then striking targets if and when there are individuals or training camps that pose a threat to the U.S. interests, either in the homeland or its interests in the region. And the challenge, Andrew, is that, I mean, I was in U.S. special operations in Afghanistan. One of the great benefits of being there is we had bases to operate Bagram, Kandahar, Herat, obviously Kabul itself, lots of other places, runways to have MQ-9s fly out of. The U.S., other than Kabul right now, and we're going to lose it probably at the end of the month when the U.S. fully withdraws, the U.S. will have no bases, no runways that it can use in Afghanistan. And at this point, at least as far as I'm aware and as far as been announced publicly, the U.S. has negotiated no bases to fly aircraft in the region, none in Pakistan, none in Central Asia, which means you're talking about the Indian Ocean, you're talking about the Persian Gulf, and you're talking about possibly some other areas. And that's a 12-hour round-trip flight from Al-Udid and Qatar. That's a long time. It doesn't give you a lot of loitering time over Afghanistan. And, and the U.S. has lost a lot of its intelligence assessments. So it's going to be a really hard counterterrorism campaign with all the groups that we're talking about there, and, and even with the ones that Alan has just talked to, some of which were killed, some of which have been released. It's going to be a, it's going to be a hard campaign. So if I understand this correctly, we rule the air there, and that's been our one clear advantage. But without our forward operating bases or our air bases, we're not able to strike and that also means that we can't fly unmanned missions with drones. Is that right? Well, we can fly them, but it's about a, if you use the MQ-9A Reaper, the Block 5, it can, it'll leave Al-Udid Air Base, fly the six hours or so each direction, 12 total hours. That gives it only a few hours to, to loiter over Afghanistan, and then that's to collect intelligence and then strike if that's what you want it to do. There's a new MQ-9, the Sky Guardian, which would give you up to 15 hours of loitering time over Afghanistan. That's not a ton of time. You know, you shave off a lot of time on going back and forth if you have bases in the country, which the U.S. does not have right now. You know, what's more, I, you know, what's the point of commanding the air if you don't know what to hit on the ground? You know, we, uh, we, we don't have bases, but we also don't have allies. We don't have eyes and ears. We don't know who's who. I think that one of the most shocking things about the evacuation is that I think that because of this quick withdrawal from Afghanistan, the U.S. embassy, the intelligence community on the ground, I don't think they have the bandwidth even to save people among the Afghans who've been helpful to us. And there, there are a lot of talented people who understood the whole geography of jihadism in Afghanistan. 
who understood who was who and who really needed to be killed or imprisoned. And I don't know what's going to happen to them. I think a lot of them will probably be killed. And a lot of them will, if they're not killed, will just end up in prison. I don't, I don't see big evacuation plans for them. I, I just don't see how really a serious counterterrorism program is feasible under these circumstances. Well, I'm hearing we can't even get, we, we have 11,000 Americans there now, and it's going to be hard enough to get them out. Is that right, Seth? I mean, what are we hearing on that? Yeah, the State Department sent out what was an incredible statement today to Afghans. And, and I, I talked to one who, who's an American citizen who went back to Kabul. His father was ill. And he saw the State Department note to, to get to the airport. The challenge, even for Americans in Kabul, is that the, the key roadways, you know, which Alan was just on on Saturday, which I've been to many times, they're not protected by American forces right now. They're controlled by the Taliban. They have Taliban checkpoints. And if, if you're in much worse shape, if you're in Jalalabad or you're down in Kandahar, and you don't have air access, and you got to drive to Kabul to then get flown out, that is an extremely dangerous drive because of all the checkpoints you're going to have to go through. They're going to check through your phone and see who your contacts are. So I, I, you know, the challenge is the U.S. has secured the airport in Kabul, but it does not control the roads. And it just puts people trying to get to the airport in an extremely dangerous situation. And to be clear, we're talking on Wednesday, August 18th, and the situation's unfolding, you know, hour by hour there. But this is what we're hearing today. And you don't expect that to loosen up, do you? Either one of you. Part of the airport is controlled by U.S. troops and the airport is surrounded by Taliban. You know, if you want to get to the airport, you have to walk through a gauntlet. And you know, if the Taliban really want to know what's going on, all they have to do is check the ideas of whoever's trying to go up there. And, you know, maybe before they beat the hell out of them, maybe before they arrest them, there are planes that are leaving on these evacuation flights that are not full simply because they can't get enough people in there. I think it's, it's very dangerous for people who want to try. I, I don't, I don't, I don't think this is, I, I don't know what's going to turn this into a uh, effective situation where you can where you can evacuate and people can feel safe. What are everyday people in Kabul doing right now? Are they just sort of shut in their their homes behind closed doors, you know, waiting to see what happens? Well, there are tens of thousands who also surrounded the airport and have tried to get in. I think that a lot of them, a lot of others, of course, are hunkering down, waiting to see what happens. I mean, there are a lot of rumors about what the Taliban is doing, it's, it's, it's hard to verify, you know, going house to house and uh, searching for people. I, I, it does seem to be true that they're searching for various social activists at uh, certain addresses, whether how far, if there is a you know, serious purge of intelligentsia, I think that that's, that's kind of the big fear, how broad and how deep a purge would be if it happens. You know, nobody can really tell at this point. What is the biggest concern that you have right now, Seth, as you're looking at the situation on the ground for the United States to be concerned with? I don't have one. I've got several. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I've got, I don't know how to reduce it to one. I think there's a really serious terrorism problem that is including with the release of prisoners over the last week, which is not going to get better. It's going to get worse. And the U.S. has put itself in a pretty tough position 
to respond to that terrorism problem. The other big issue that I'd highlight is the humanitarian one, which is once we see, and I assume the Taliban will, I mean, we're, they're in a bit of a honeymoon period right now. Once we see the Taliban in various cities begin to enforce Sharia and the honeymoon is over, I think there are a lot of people that are not going to want to hang around the way we saw in the 90s. So I think that will then trigger a movement of people both inside of the country, internally displaced, and then refugees outside of the country. So the U.S. preparation and planning for what's just transpired over the last week was not good. I mean, it was poor. And it would be now incumbent on U.S. State Department, USAID officials, White House, to work with NGOs, including the refugee organizations, to help deal with what will likely be a huge refugee flow. So you're not buying some of the notions that have been put out there that this version of the Taliban, you know, knows the consequences of terrorism and that they're not going to, there's a deterrent that, you know, should they strike us or our allies, you know, hell is going to rain down on them and they don't want that. You're not, you're not buying that. Well, here's one reason where I don't buy that. And that is if, The Afghan government, both under Hamid Karzai and under Ashraf Ghani, with U.S. help, including my involvement with sophisticated intelligence collection capabilities, drones, geospatial imagery, cannot keep a lid on terrorist organizations operating in the country. You can't control all areas. You get into areas of Kunar province, the Pesh Valley, the mountains around Jalalabad. You just can't control all those areas. I, I don't see any way the Taliban is going to be able to control the country, which will leave pockets of groups that will be able to conduct training camps. And then when you bring a, an over 1,000-mile border between Afghanistan and Pakistan, the easy movement of fighters crossing that border Taliban's not going to be able to control what happens on the Pakistan side of the border. So I, I just don't I just don't see in any feasible way the Taliban able to control what's going on in all areas of the country, which will create sanctuaries and has in the past. And Alan, you're reporting from talking to these folks inside the prisons in Afghanistan that were recently you know, sprung from. What does it tell you about the situation? I think the Taliban is actually has a theoretically has a better chance of controlling terror and jihadi groups or controlling the territory of Afghanistan than we did, you know, with our high-tech weaponry and whatnot, simply because they know the people. But I I think the biggest problem is the Taliban might not be able to control itself. I think that in specifically because they've been fighting us for the past 20 years, you know, there have been a lot of terrorist groups that have been embedded with the Taliban who they feel very loyal to because they've been allies all this time. I mean, after. 2001, when we went in there, we basically destroyed the Taliban. And, you know, they didn't have a standing army anymore. Uh, one, one thing you learn by speaking to these people on the ground is that when the Taliban was destroyed, the, the, the people who really started mounting the first attacks and uh, fought effectively in the countryside against U.S. forces were Al-Qaeda, Al-Qaeda units. You know, they were d- designing IEDs and teaching out Taliban how to, how to fight back. And, and I, I think that 
some close bonds have probably developed with them, um, between them all this time, and that they are really very effectively embedded in the Taliban and part of the Taliban in a way that they didn't used to be. You know, before 2001, there were a lot of tensions between al-Qaeda and the Taliban. I, I don't know if there's a whole lot of light between large parts of the Taliban now and al-Qaeda, and I, I, th- I think that's very problematic. I would guess that's the case with quite a few groups. So what do, what do we do about this now, Seth? Is there anything we can do about it? I think we've got to do a couple of things. One is I don't think we give up and completely walk away. I, 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 don't, I don't know that, that we can coordinate closely with some of the governments that appear to have a closer relationship to the Taliban. The Russian embassy is still open. The Chinese embassy is still open. The Iranian embassy is still open. All have, in various ways, provided diplomatic, military, and intelligence support to the Taliban. And obviously, Pakistan is the largest state backers. I don't know that the U.S. can really trust most of those governments to operate. And, you know, some of them, and Alan's worked a lot on the Russians, you know, the Russians are going to have to be really careful in any kind of a public footprint. There's just a lot of memories from the 1980s. So I I think as problematic as it is, I think the U.S. will have to conduct an intelligence surveillance reconnaissance and then a strike campaign in Afghanistan. If we can negotiate bases closer than Qatar and Al-Udid, that would be ideal. If not, we'll have to do it from now, and you're going to have to use some combination of strike aircraft and fixed wing and and drones to, to do that. And to collect. And as Alan noted earlier, there are going to be huge challenges in doing that. But I I, I think there's a huge national security impetus. And I think there's a huge impetus to assist in the humanitarian exodus of Afghans and refugees and and internally displaced persons in the country. So I, I think those are probably the two biggest issues. There will be a third one that we've already started to hear in some areas of Afghanistan, the what looked like, I mean, I, and, and I think we're a long way from this, but pockets of resistance or people that will leave into Central Asia, Tajikistan, Uzbekistan, and will live to fight another day. So it'll be a longer term question about what the U.S. wants to do down the road. Alan, can I ask you, you know, what is going to be the next phase of your reporting on this now that you've, you know, been forced to leave the country, your colleagues are on the way out, how, how are you going to approach reporting on this place now that you can't be there? Well, I can tell you what I'm interested in. I'm, you know, I'm interested in the extent to which Afghanistan turns into like the next big burning man for international jihadists. You know, there's always been a center of jihadism going around the world for, you know, decades. You know, at one point it was, it was Afghanistan before and it was Iraq, you know, former Yugoslavia. Is it going to sort of pivot back here and be a big party for these guys? That, that's that's one, one big thing to watch. The second one is how Russia and China behave. I mean, it was very easy for them to be pro-Taliban before the Taliban took over. And, you know, they're, now they're going to have to own this. And since we've been so thoroughly expelled and humiliated here, I think that the Russians actually weren't expecting to win this big. I think what, what, what they were gaming for was the Taliban to do very well and then for some kind of coalition government to appear that was maybe dominated by the Taliban and which would have been a problem for us because we would have had to continue pouring billions and billions of aid into this 
you know, monster and it, it would have just continued to hamper us and, and going forward. But now what the Russians are stuck with is this country that's going to be in, in, internationally isolated. It's not we're not going to be paying for it. It's going to have lousy roads. It's going to have jihadis running all over the place. And, you know, how they react to that, I'll, I'll be very interested in, you know, maybe, you know, maybe they'll end up being the kind of allies that, you know, we'll need for the type of operations that Seth's talking about. Well, and and what it'll what it'll be interesting because then the Russians will own, in a sense, or partly own both Afghanistan and Syria, probably the two most dense jihadi countries in the world right now, uh, particularly with North, Western Syria and the Idlib area, and now Afghanistan. I mean, this is this will be a tough one for Moscow. Yeah, and you know, that's kind of one of the funny things about this is that uh, you know previously I had thought that uh, Afghanistan was going to turn into the mirror image of Syria, where you know the United States was going to be just like Russia and, and you know Russia and Syria supporting this weak central government, you know, surrounded by jihadis attacking it, you know, that it was, it was just going to be like that. But in fact, you know, our weak government was just a lot weaker than theirs, and <laughs> we didn't even make it that far. I mean, that's that's what really surprised me. What else was the biggest surprise for you as you were? Preparing to leave so quickly, I, I you know I haven't made made up my mind about this, but I I am I, I was frankly surprised at the animosity between Taliban and Daesh and or Taliban and ISIS. I was kind of skeptical of those reports, but you know it appears that those guys really do hate each other just as much as you know Stalinists and Trotskyists. It's uh, they they can't live together, and that's something to account for. But like I said, I don't think it's that encouraging. So at the Burning Man, in the Jihadi Burning Man, they're going to be on opposite sides of the trail. They're not going to be in the same tent. Doesn't doesn't look like it to me, unless maybe we come back and they decide to fight us together. I mean, they, they did cooperate fighting us sometimes, but there were other times we cooperated with the Taliban and fighting ISIS. So I, I no, I don't I, I don't think they're capable of that. They don't appear to be capable of really serious cooperation. And, and that's that that is actually maybe an indicator of just how strong they are. That they think that they can fight among themselves and still fight us at the same time. It does show that the Taliban are, are not going to have, even with the withdrawal of U.S. forces, they're going to have enemies on their territory. And the Islamic State will be likely, will, will be one of them. It also is, you know, the uh, Taliban's rule in the 1990s was not exactly a glorious, well-run government. The World Bank development indicators during that period had Afghanistan ranked at the bottom of every single governance indicator from corruption and government effectiveness to just the basic effectiveness of the judiciary. So it's going to be a hard one for the Taliban now to pull together. In many ways, it's easier to fight a war. They're now going to be in the position of trying to govern and particularly Afghan society has changed dramatically from the 1990s to today, including and especially in cities. We've already seen some limited demonstrations against the Taliban in Jalalabad today. I mean, I, it shows some levels of opposition. I think they're going to be quickly stamped out, though. I cannot imagine the Taliban's going to stand for much of that kind of activity. But they're going to have a hard time governing. It's not, it's not easy. So Alan, before you left the, you know, people in Kabul that you were associating with, did they seem aware that, you know, their 
city was about to, you know, flip a switch back to the dark ages? Yeah, I think they were cognizant of what was going on more than, certainly more than I was. I, I think in the final days, you know, in the Wall Street Journal Bureau, we we have a house there, and I was, we were all sort of having a hard time making eye contact, you know, because yeah. it was, there was a sense that I was leaving and they were being left behind. You know, I don't, I don't speak Dari, I don't speak, speak Pashto, unfortunately. And, and, and so it's, it's not like I could really tune into the subtleties of what's going on here. But I, I mean, what, what you have is a Maoist rebellion, you know, of uh, backwoods fanatics coming to town. And to the extent that Afghanistan is urbanized, you know, it's, it's not going to be quite like the 90s. But, I, you know, the, there, it still is a pretty rural society. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know how it's going to pan out. There's there's so many unknowns here, and I, I I wish I wish I could confidently come up with a prediction, but I, I just can't. Well, it's something we're going to have to all watch really closely, and we'll we'll look for your reporting, you know, on this in the days to come. Alan, thank you so much for taking time out of your travels to join us, and Seth, thank you for your insights and helping us get to the truth of the matter about this unfolding situation. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 